Okay, how's that for volume? Yeah, fine. All right. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, Paul Finch, thank you for coming. It's very good to have you here. And you are, for people who don't know who you are, who might have read you in read your articles in the AJ. You are now the is it the program director of um, London of World Architecture Festival. Yeah, that's my main main activity, and I have sort of subsidiary activities as editorial director of the Architects Journal and the Architectural Review. Mm. And um, you used to be the head of Cave, is that correct? Yes, I was. I had a long period uh, with various roles at the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment, starting off as a founder commissioner. In 1999, I subsequently became deputy chairman to Stuart Lipton, um, and I had a long period from 2005 to 2012 of chairing CABE's design review panel for the London Olympics, and I went back to um, CABE um, as chair and following the government decision to close off the money was involved in um, merging CABE with the Design Council where mm. it still now resides nominally. Yeah. Uh, for people like me who don't really know what CABE did, we should say that CABE was the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment. Like when, I, when I obviously got into practice, it wasn't around anymore. It had already been changed or incorporated into the Design Council. What exactly was it that CABE did and what was its role at the time? It began life as a substitute for the Royal Fine Art Commission, um, whose own life began in the 19th century, actually advising on art and furnishings for the Palace of Westminster um, after the Great Fire and the Pugin and Barry redesign. Having done that, it slightly fell into abeyance, but got revived in the 1920s. And it acted as a sort of uh, government watchdog to, to, to review really significant designs that were considered to be nationally important architectural designs. Um, and it also produced publications on things like street design, um, town planning, so on and so forth. Um, it was thought by New Labour to have run out of steam and it probably didn't help that it was chaired by um, a Tory politician, Lord St. John of Forsley, <laughs> who at one time had been Parliamentary Private Secretary to Margaret Thatcher. And he was perceived as being rather patrician and it really didn't fit the kind of New Labour uh, view of the world. Mm. So they decided to abolish the commission and to create um, a replacement organization which would be more, shall we say, uh, more democratic, more regional, more communicative, more user friendly. Presumably cheaper as well because it was austerity. Uh, no, I don't think it was cheaper actually because, um, if anything, it was probably a bit more expensive because it was taken seriously. I mean, I think Blair was convinced that if you wanted a renewal program of schools and hospitals and housing and all the rest of it, that actually having a watchdog that will both promote good quality design and, and act as a kind of arbiter of um, 
taste is the wrong word, but you know, an arbiter of whether things were any good or not, um, was considered important. So actually, I don't think it was cost cutting. And we started off relatively modest, but we did grow and expand, particularly because John Prescott, when he was Deputy Prime Minister, um, regarded Cape as a good thing. Mm. And he doubled us in size with a budget to match because he wanted us to kind of take over public space policy, um, not just architecture and buildings. Um, so our remit expanded. Fundamentally, the remit was to promote good design. Um, and in that, it represented continuity with the Royal Fine Art Commission. Mm. The most newsworthy things we did were always design review because the magazines love Cabe slams this, Cabe praises <laughs> that. But actually, that was only part of the story and uh, one of the significant areas of difference between Cabe and the old RFAC was we had an enabling program, so we were offering sort of disinterested advice to clients, both professional but more likely um, amateur or occasional uh, clients not just about how to go about procuring designers, but also how to write briefs, how to run programs. We had a publications operation which reflected the programs we were doing on the ground. So, you know, how to be a good client, uh, what constitutes good urban design, um, the design of new communities. And these documents are still, they're archived, they're all publicly available. And they've been widely used around the world, actually. Okay. Um, so, you know, we had quite a rich program. Um, we did education. Um, as mentioned, we did a public space program where we were promoting things like parks and gardens. Um, and we had a kind of proselytizing um, role. Our first chairman, Sir Stuart Lipson, um, used the phrase injecting architecture into the bloodstream of the nation. <laughs> um, and to an extent, I think we did do that because even though CABE no longer exists in its old guise, um, things like design review were widely taken up by many different organisations. And it was all done on the CABE model, mm. which in turn uh, derived to a great extent from the principles and practice of the Royal Fine Art Commission. I think it was more user-friendly. It was a little bit less like a magistrate's court. We would always, for example, have conversations with applicants and their architects in the room at the time of the presentation. Mm. So people who had comments to make, you would make the comment or ask a question and you would get a response in the room and that formed part of the conversation. The old RFAC would ask questions um, and then they wouldn't give any indication of the letter that they would be writing <laughs> as a result of the presentation. So people didn't know what was coming their way. Yeah. In our case, we pretty much told them what they could expect. So it's kind of more interactive. Um, I suppose you might say it was, it, was, it was a bit more sort of Blairite in the sense of being very communicative. Mm. And I think it did a useful job, and for the money it cost the taxpayer and it's kind of peanut money mm. a couple it, of million a year it was the big public projects that you focused on wasn't it the the, sort of the larger more prominent projects and was there a formula for what got referred to you and what was dealt with at a local level 
Well, um, in a way, we had a free hand. We could um, we could intervene, if that's the right word, in any project, um, public or private, um, either where we were asked for an opinion about something or where we thought, actually, this is a significant project in a significant area and it should be reviewed. Um, generally, somebody would want a review. So it might be a local authority if it wanted a backup to its own views that a scheme is either horrendous or wonderful. Mm. But we also did for a period, um, actually tiny projects, we would we would review um, proposals for how you know one-off houses for example in the countryside okay so we worked at um every sort of scale and in every sort of region the dilemma for us was that you know at best we could probably we were we were scratching the surface you know if we were doing one percent of significant mm. applications you know that could be surprising but on the other hand if you made a difference to a couple of hundred schemes a year over a decade um, that starts to be quite significant if they're the projects that are going to have a significant effect on a locality and its community. I wish Cape still exists. I think it was foolish. I mean, it was kind of, it was cost-cutting foolishness to get rid of it. I don't think it was malice. It was more like a, it was more like an accidental kind of car crash. <laughs> um, but in any event, some of the spirit of Cape lives on. And wherever I go in the world, I find architects who still use Cave's documents mm. because, of course, there are certain there are certain rules or or habits in respect of good architecture and urban design, which I think don't actually change very much. Mm. And um, it's it was meant to be incorporated into the design council, wasn't it? Like, to what extent did that actually happen? Does the function that it performed still exist, just in within a different organisation? Uh, yes, it does, but it 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 continued, but was sort of changed utterly because the design council um, is a charity which has to be uh, self-supporting, it has to uh, earn its own money. So CABE moved from being a publicly funded organisation, which would review things free of charge to anyone, um, to an operation which needed somebody to be paying it. Now, there have been examples, you know, Oxford City Council, for example, gave Design Council CABE a contract for several years to do design review, to advise on education, training for counsellors and all that sort of thing. So certain of CABE's functions do continue, but it's not systematic. Mm. And critically, it's not something where CABE can, uh, as we used to, um, if there was a problem somewhere um, or an opportunity that wasn't being properly seized, that we could make an intervention yeah um that's no longer the case it's entirely dependent on somebody wishing to pay for the service all right so the design council or or the, the function within the design council can't sort of by its own merit or its own initiative look at a scheme and say we think this should be called in that's correct to, yeah and and of course the um the, the sort of quasi statutory powers that cape had which actually were no more than the Royal Fine Art Commission. It was all. It was a bit smoke and mirrors. <laughs> um, we could ask to see any designs made in respect of a planning application um, 
that was extant. There was government guidance saying what sort of project should be referred to CABE, you know, nationally significant, above a certain size, and so on and so forth. Um, but actually, there were no real power. It was responsibility without power. Mm. CABE didn't have the power to stop any proposal nor indeed to approve any proposal. What it could do, and what it did do, was to offer disinterested advice to the planning authority, the architects and the client as to what the merits or demerits of a particular scheme were in the view of the Commission and its uh, design review panel. Mm. And did it work in coordination with local design review panels, or did those not exist at the time? Uh, there were some, um, I would say, regional rather than local, or you know, they they would be based on one of the, one of the big cities, and um, yes, there was a network of uh, regional design review panels which Cape helped to coordinate, mm. and indeed acted as a conduit for funding. Mm. So uh, yeah, we could call people all over the country um, if we wanted specific local input on a project uh, and people from those regional panels would come down for sort of one-off design reviews of things that were affecting them in their area and CAVE actually ran a regional um, program I chaired the, the regional committee of CAVE for some while um, where we would visit and go around the country looking at particular places with either particular problems or opportunities and give as helpful advice as we could. Mm. Because one of the things I'm thinking a lot more about, especially with this Building Beautiful Commission, is what is the appropriate role of the government with regards to built environment policy? And to what extent should the government or local government um, intervene or dictate what what is built or what it looks like? Well, I mean, it's a kind of eternal question, isn't it? Um, should communities dictate what things look like? What's a community? Um, is it? Is it uh, self-selecting? Uh, what powers might it have and why should it have those powers? And the essential structure that we have is one of uh, responsibility for making decisions resides with people who've been elected. I think in the end, that's about as good as you're going to get. Having done that, you then have your checks and balances hmm. to try to prevent um, you know the dictatorship of the of of the elected, um, and that's why there's this constant you could call it tension or creative tension, balance or imbalance. I mean, I think it's all of those things on different occasions uh, between, um, as it were, the voice of the people, the local authority, the technical advice offered by planners. There is a system of law in place which allows you to make a plan. It's the only reason that the system can run is it's in law. Mm. Um, it's not arbitrary. And, of course, local opinion has very definitely got its place uh, in all that. And there are arrangements for consultation. You can't just approve things just like that without letting people know what's going on, so on and so forth. Now, having said that, um, there's still an er element of derisisme in it. I mean, you know... Uh, the local the local planners might say it's a terrible scheme so it gets thrown out by elected members but then there's an appeal and ultimately it'll be the Secretary of State um, who decides 
on the basis of his inspector's advice and of course having taken legal counsel mm. and on the advice of officials but ultimately um the the power travels up uh, rather than down in most instances is that a good thing um on balance i think it's probably better because actually when that when that power goes upwards there are a lot of responsibilities and kind of baggage attached to it i mm. mean it's not exactly napoleonic you know that the secretary of state's decision can itself of course be challenged by judicial review and has been if he does something which isn't properly explained mm. on the other hand what it does stop um is uh kind of local soviets deciding that because um because some blokes never heard of render he thinks it's a suspicious continental material and doesn't want any of it to appear on any building on his patch mm. which has happened so i think what it does do it, it stops a sort of nonsense uh, happening at a local level of entirely arbitrary possibly ignorant though not necessarily uh, but possibly whimsical or or, or neophobe, um, or neophile, neophiliac um, attitudes determining what it is that people can do with their own land and their own money when they want to build something. Yeah. Well, there's a sort of weird tension between the sort of the laissez-faire side of the spectrum where you should, it sort of argues that everyone should just be able to build whatever they want and it doesn't really matter. And the more sort of state-dictated angle of, oh, it's perfectly reasonable for the state or local government to say you can design this or you should design this this way or use this design guide etc etc well it's pretty i mean it, it it's still pretty laissez-faire i mean in law you can build anything you want on land that you control unless somebody can produce convincing and sound reasons about why you shouldn't it is actually in law that way round Mm. Of course, the way it's viewed, and certainly the way, to an extent, bureaucracies view it, is that you can't do anything um, without their say-so. But actually, I think this is it's quite an important distinction. Mm. Yes, you do have to uh, get planning permission to build anything of any significance, but you certainly don't have to get planning permission to do quite a lot of building, actually. If you look at things you don't need permission for, it's quite substantial at a kind of local level. Actually, if you're doing something significant, which is going to have, therefore, significant impact on other people, then isn't it appropriate that you should be uh, going to get some sort of permissions? And this, of course, there is the question of building regulation as well. Mm. So, you know, building regulation, I don't think anyone's going to say, we well, should be able to build anything you want. And who cares about fire regulations? They're just an imposition. Yeah. And you could argue that, that planning in that sense is no different to fire regulation. Uh, it's necessary and it's desirable, provided that it is administered in a fair and reasonable fashion. Mm. Well, it's sort of there's a key distinction in regulations to do with performance and ones to do with aesthetics, aren't there? Because like you'd say there's loads of regulations, say, on, I don't know, vacuum cleaners that say it must do this, must do that. But there's nothing that says your vacuum cleaner must look like this. Well, there's nothing in planning that says your building has got to look like this or like that. In fact, they're explicit 
um, and the National Planning Policy Framework, there are explicit injunctions against that. And this business of aesthetic control, I think, is grossly exaggerated. You know, the, 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 the idea that the state is attempting to tell people to design things in a certain manner. And what I say to them, where, does that, where, where is that? In where is it? Mm. The only place where it applies is, of course, uh, in Britain, um, you know, country where, where heritage for better or worse, uh, has a profound place in our psyche. Mm. So where you get told what you can and you can't do in no uncertain terms, it's in relation to heritage. It's yeah. not in relation to new build at all. You can do anything you want. And I would say that actually all you have to do is to look around to see the point of that. You mm. know, no one said you can't build the gherkin, even though the Dean and Chapter of St. Paul's objected to a circular form at the top because they said it was a sacred form like their dome, um, and therefore was an inappropriate building because you could see it from St. Paul's. But it got built. Yeah. And in fact, you know, Zaha Hadid built things. I, I, you know, where is this thing about well, uh, planning law tells you what things have got to look like? I think it's a fantasy. It's not true. Yeah. What about things like local design guides? So if you're the, the I don't know, the local authority for the Cotswolds, and it says in your design guide that all the new developments must use Cotswold stone, say... And there, there are sort of hyper-local guidelines that the local authorities say you don't have to use these, but they're guidelines, and if you don't use them, you're not likely to get permission. Well, does that it, count? It, it's 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 because of the obsession with heritage, and this all goes back to the Essex design guide from the 1970s, uh, where they invented entirely bogus, unhistorical um, propositions about materials and form. Mm. I mean, they're ridiculous. And actually, you can, generally speaking, especially if the building is invisible from any public place, uh, you can, of course, apply to to build any sort of house in any style you want. Um, and you know, this is under various bits of planning legislation. They're always changing the number and the letter on the clause. But you know, let's say it's mm. the get out clause, where actually, you know. Uh, Rowan Atkinson wants a Richard Meyer modernist house in Oxfordshire or in the Cotswolds, wherever it is, and he gets it. So, you know, who cares about all the other stuff around there? And actually, what business is it of anyone else's anyway? Yeah. Um, and the same thing uh, applies to, I would say, all architectural styles. I mean, if somebody wants to build a classical house on a country estate, our attitude at Cabe was that actually... Why should anybody stop that happening? Mm. Um, so I, I think the laissez-faire argument is a good one, and I think that the, um, it, you know, it's the Heritage Brigade, and I, I mean all of the Heritage Brigade, not just the people who want everything to be classical, think nothing's improved since the 18th century, but also the people who think that nothing from the 20th century should ever be knocked down, mm. um, and it's a kind of. Um, at worst, I think, is a sort of sick obsession with the past and a profound belief that all the talented designers we've got today can't do anything better or the equivalent of what their talented predecessors did in centuries gone by. And I would say that's demonstrably not the case um, and people should get a life. Mm. So do you think in the in the case of like a local development of a say a small housing development within a, a small settlement do you think that the residents of that settlement should have a say in or, or 
rather by what mechanism should the residents have a say in what that looks like if at well, all. you mean the other the existing residents yeah the existing or the, residents yeah, yeah or the people who are going to see it that aren't the ones who are going to buy it or going to well the first thing uh, you know i would i would just point out that um there is a very serious irony failure on the part of people who live in homes which were themselves new once objecting to something else which is going to be new now. Mm. I mean, it's a form of sickness and it leads to sort of uh, mental gymnastics uh, which justify in an entirely selfish and self-interested and self-obsessed way that I'm here and I'm more important that somebody's going to live here in the future. Mm. It's a ridiculous attitude, especially given that we all die. I mean, it's a kind of psychological condition that I find rather hard to understand. And it's generally based on extreme selfishness and partly explains why um, attitudes to develop, particularly in the countryside, uh, have resulted in rural communities being completely unable to house themselves and their offspring because of some nutcase planning rule um, that says it's sort of wrong to build a house in a field. Yeah. But Why it, is it wrong? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, well, sort of it's unsurprising as far as I'm concerned that people sort of act on their own, with their own regard when it comes to this sort of thing. And the, the sort of the hypocrisy, I guess, is a, an inevitable human trait as far as I can see, even though it's not, not a good one, certainly. Um, but, but do you think the current system of, of objections, which are then taken into account by planners when they're ordering awarding applications um do you think that's an appropriate one or does that need to change in terms of the the engagement with the existing populace around a new development well i think you know protest is inevitable and i don't mind um uh, people expressing their view at all i think if they object to something they have every right to do so on the other hand i don't think you should base a planning system um around objections i think you should base a planning system around what is reasonable in the circumstances um, is it reasonable uh, to build housing in this area? And the answer to that is almost inevitably yes, if you've got a growing population. I mean, why wouldn't you? And why would you want to freeze um, something? So oh, well, we're going to privilege the people who live here now just because through an accident of history, they happen to occupy homes, which, I mean, I repeat the phrase, we used to use this at Cabe a lot. Everything was new once. Mm. Um, so don't imagine that somehow um, you're there as sort of God-given right. You, you know, if you lived in a cave, that might be true. But if you're living in built form, it's not. Um, and I think the planning system is actually rather good at balancing out um, arguments uh, for and against uh, development. Uh, in a way, that's what it's there for. Um, and the alternative a lot of people complain about planning. They say, oh, it doesn't reflect local opinion and all the rest of it. Well, why don't you get rid of planning? And then guess what? People who owned land would just build exactly what they wanted. See if you like that. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's a sort of slightly um, false argument. And there are so many checks and balances um, in the system as a whole. So objectors have their right to say things, and house builders do, the architects do, and everybody else does. And in the end, actually, I would say most things of merit tend to get built, actually. Now, it's true that there are, th there are things of very little merit that also get built. That's, in a way, another question, because quite often those things 
are in situations where there is no existing community to moan about it. Mm. And that's where you need your uh, professional opinion and possibly bodies like cable design review panels to say, well, hang on a moment, just because there's nobody living next door doesn't make this a good project. It may be a very badly designed project. And if it's very badly designed, then it's not going to be great for the people who are going to be living here, you know, for mm. the next hundred years. So, you know, it, it, it's not a question of saying that everything's perfect about planning, but I kind of object to the notion that everything about the planning system and planners is all wrong and useless. You know, the vast majority of planning applications go through the system in the appropriate time of eight weeks. And it's only the big tough stuff that takes a long time. And quite often that's because somebody is having a punt. They're not doing conforming applications which fit in with a local plan. They're having a punt. Um, so it's a gamble. And even then, what the British system does, because it's not a zoning system like, you know, New York. Yeah. It's the, uh, Nigel Hugel's got a lovely phrase to describe this. You know, the developer with Stuart Lipton who did Stratford, you know, it's three million square feet, was the basis for the our London Olympic bid in the end. Um, and it was terrifically resilient and it's kind of all working out. Uh, they never had a public inquiry. Nigel's point is the British planning system is the occasion for a conversation. Mm. Um, I quite like the fact conversation is an anagram of conservation. <laughs> and I think actually balancing out new and existing is part of what good design is all about. Yeah. I mean, from the sort of point of view of the, the system of objections that you have, it's a, it's a negative feedback system, really, isn't it? That you object if you don't like it, but there's very little sort of proactive encouragement. Is there a way, do you think, to turn that around and make it a more positive and proactive system where people are consulted before something is proposed in some way or another? Well, people are always consulted before, you know, before they're built, let's say. Now, before they're proposed is a, such a theoretical matter. And uh, actually, you're only going to get people to go to a public meeting when they're going to oppose something, right? Mm. Nobody goes to a public meeting to support something. They, they might, if, let's say, there's a possibility of getting a bypass, you know, and it's going to reduce traffic, and it's good for kids, they'll probably only go to the public meeting if somebody's trying to stop it. If it's being proposed and they like it, why do they have to go to a meeting? Yeah. So I th essentially, this is a, it's, um, a reactive um, process. And, I, you know, the proof positive that that's the case is that, um, in theory, uh, the entire public has got the chance to determine what their area will be like in the future by going to um, consultation meetings about the local plan. Well, how many people go? The only people who go, actually, are, are kind of landowners and developers. Maybe some architects, you know, the kind of, you know the good the good guys who just want to promote good standards in their area mm. the general public you know it's it that's quite a tough one the nearest you get to it is amenity societies and most amenity societies basically are frightened and i completely understand that because in many cases they've got something to be frightened about which is things are going to change mm. the smart ones kind of embrace it and say well we know change is coming but we want it to be good change 
and the bad ones, or not bad ones, but you know, your average amenity society, they basically just want to stop things being knocked down because they like where they where they live. And let's face it, we're all nimbys. Uh, you know, architects, politicians, if we have half a chance and we could say, I don't want construction right next door to me, you know what? Everyone's going to vote for that. And yeah. it's just, that is human nature. And I think we have to understand that. But we also have to understand that the, the planning system is, isn't and shouldn't be designed to um, pander to NIMBYs, nor should it pander to sort of venal developers trying to do bad projects. Mm. Well, I think there's a lot of scepticism about um, public consultations at the moment because it is, like you say, the very few interested parties or the, the busybodies who have nothing else better to do who go along and, and protest or contribute, whereas the vast majority of people who have jobs and day-to-day lives and are slightly more apathetic to it aren't consulted or don't engage with it so could you is there a way of sort of getting around that by i don't know by linking consultations to local democracy in some way or by having i'd say ward councillors make the decision about the final decision about applications or or having someone who's actively incentivized to engage with everyone having some say in the process and thereby having a, a feedback system that way well I think the idea of giving more power to ward councillors is is akin to giving more power to the church warden in Dad's <laughs> army. You know, it's absolutely amazing how people can turn into little tyrants given half a chance, and I think that's the last thing you want, frankly. Also, the more you devolve power down to those individuals, you know, frankly, the more improper and undue influence is going to be exercised, etc., etc., etc. You know, I think this stuff needs to be transparent, and the way of doing that is to have officers' reports that are open to public inspection, uh, planning committee meetings. I'm not wild about planning subcommittee meetings that are passing things on the nod, um, unless there's proper scrutiny. Um, I think as a system, has got a lot going for it. And actually, in a way, the reason that people don't want to get massively engaged with uh, with their local plan is I think at a certain level, people do understand that change is inevitable. One thing, you know, if you've got a successful community in a successful town, it is going to grow. Mm. Um, and actually, the reason they're not too fussed about it unless it's going to happen right next door to them, in which case they join, you know, that worst of all democratic organisations, the single-issue pressure group. What yeah. a pain in the neck they are. I mean, they're kind of... That's that's what the worst of heritage groups are, or amenity societies. Mm. They're just single-issue pressure groups. They can't... They do not want to and will not look at the big picture. They don't care about anyone except themselves and their single issue that they're obsessed with. Um, and they don't care about the consequences. I'll give an ex- as an example, which most people have forgotten. You know, we had an extant planning permission to build an estuary airport in the early 1970s, and it was it really? was scrapped because of single-issue pressure groups complaining about this and that and this and that. Um, and um, from that point of view, it explains why, you know, France managed to build a couple of airports while we were still messing about deciding on a new terminal at Heathrow. And why China's opening an airport a month, and we can't even decide. Oh, should we have a new runway at Gatwick? I mean, it's pathetic. Yeah. 
It's pathetic. Well, I suppose that's the downside of a system where you do have proper engagement with people rather than an authoritarian approach of we're just going to build it and we don't care what you think. Yeah, but that it always happens in the end, doesn't it? That's the joke. That's why it's a phony. Because if in the national interest um, you need to expand an airport, um, actually... It doesn't matter what the consultation is. It's just a way of com- of, of converting um, public money into the houses that planning lawyers buy at the end of any long inquiry. Mm. I mean, it's great for them. Um, everybody feels fed up because they because actually, if you were consulted and it didn't go your way, then you say, "Well, consultation doesn't work," which actually, philosophically, of course, is nonsense. Um, and occasionally, when it does go your way. What happens is uh, a generation later, we're kind of wondering why, well, why, why didn't we get that estuary airport? Why couldn't we be like Hong Kong or Beijing or Tokyo, yeah, or Paris, or Amsterdam, mm. or anywhere else you want to mention? Why can't we do things here? So you think it would be better to take a more for the government to take a more strategic approach and and increase the number of like um, projects that it builds on a on a non-consulted basis, effectively, or, or to speed up the process at, at the price of sort of rigorous consultation for the national good and the sort of the, spe- the sake of the speed of progress. Yeah, well, I think major infrastructure projects, in the end, the decisions about them always get taken at a national level. But the consultation takes place about the detail. I mean, you, you, you make a strategic decision to build a motorway, but the precise route, I think, is a matter for negotiation and consultation i mean why destroy things if if you can avoid it yeah and okay it costs another 50 million but you just say three villages or so, you know something like that we're having this argument now about hs2 mm. and in typical british fashion what we often do is is somehow to get the worst of all possible worlds in other words we um we have consultation procedures but then having actually run them through and if it's in the national interest then why would the fact of villages going to be destroyed get in the way of what is in the national interest so then we're really miserly about the compensation payments Mm. you know why don't we cut to the chase and just give anyone who's going to be affected twice what their property is worth and get on with it because actually you speed it up you save a fortune. And people would complain a lot less if they were getting twice market value cer- for their properties. They yeah. certainly would. And actually, I don't think it's unreasonable because it's not just the value of the property, it's the disruption to their yeah, lives. The inconvenience of having to move, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And it's a kind of, I, I think it's a appalling attitude um, that we have, that it's a kind of cavalier disregard for people's personal feelings who are not in a position to stop something happening you know, I would still give the example of the Estuary Airport was the disastrous example of when you allow these people actually to stop something. Mm. Ally that to kind of political cowardice on Harold Wilson's part. Um, and, I, you know, I think all this big stuff, if you're going to take strategic decisions, for God's sake, take them, be generous to the people who are going to be affected and get on with it. Mm. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely a strong argument for taking a more rigorous and and slightly less bureaucratic approach for large national infrastructure projects it does seem harder at a smaller local level though to do with how you actually consult people and how people feel consulted because you can't take a sort of 
author local authority authoritarian approach to a one or two house size housing development well i think that you know housing estates are are just sort of um notorious red rags to a bull aren't they um you know probably worse than roads in a way because a lot of people like roads <laughs> look at the <laughs> everyone M uses them don't look they? at the m25 you know all all those small settlement relatively small settlements that suddenly got a slip road onto the m25 all thought it was marvelous yeah it was, it was... Well, i thought it was interesting um watching question time on thursday where the residents of aylesbury were complaining that they don't have a station on hs2 yeah but you know that if the if there was proposed one they'd all suddenly probably say this is great except for the ones whose garden it went through um so it's i mean the, obviously the merits and good size and bad size to that project individually but in terms of the sort of the system more generally do you think and and, and the building beautiful commission mm. what would you like to see come out of that in sort of a year's time in terms of recommendations on any level whether design or planning or well i think you know the 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 word beautiful is a tough one because uh let's say i think we could agree more easily about something that's well designed as opposed to beautiful i take a kettle uh, because uh, the design is going to have something to do with its utility and its function um, it's not simply about aesthetics and the word beauty i think it's just so loaded um, building beautiful it's illiterate it's ungrammatically <laughs> shouldn't it be building beautifully or mm. beautiful building I mean I, I, I honestly I'm always interested in the way that language is used on, on these occasions and I think the building beautiful commission mm. the BBC um, to me has got this horrible jarring tone and it's a really poor way to start a conversation you know building bootiful sounds like bernard matthews stuffing turkeys oh it's bootiful bootiful yeah and i i you know i think it's it's uh i mean building beauty would have might have would have been better at least it would have sounded like um you know kind of recognizable uh english that's so a p very poor way to start I personally think that there are uh, the the fundamental misconception in the creation of this whole thing, which has got nothing to do with the people involved, and I'm certainly not interested in ad hominem attacks on Roger Scruton or any of the any of the people involved. I think they're pathetic. Um, but it the, but the creation of this thing, I think, is based on a on entirely fallacious premise which is that somehow we can solve our housing crisis because those pesky planners and communities up and down the land will start giving instant permissions um, to uh, the million extra homes that we need or whatever this year's favorite figure is um, uh, because you know as it were and to exaggerate to, for the sake of the argument um, that homes have got columns and pediments as complete fantasy so um, the first thing I hope comes out of this campaign and it may it may do 
is an acknowledgement that in in the eyes of at least some of the people who set it up that it's a false premise Mm. that actually a housing shortage has nothing to do with ideas of beauty and it will not be solved by imagining that by adopting uh, one particular architectural style which some people think is more beautiful than another um, architectural style that somehow that's going to resolve anything because I don't think it will. I think the upside might be that actually the discussion of aesthetics and architecture and what it is that uh, we admire and like in terms of visual culture is an extremely interesting area. And I, I, could, I could well imagine that there could be a strand of this campaign that has a lot more to do with that and a lot less to do with the fantasy about solving the housing problem. Mm. So those would be my sort of uh, two hopes in a way, end, end the housing numbers fantasy, but by all means let's have a debate about um, aesthetics, which is quite rare in British public life, and yet um, we actually have a highly sophisticated visual culture. It's just in general, it's not to do with architecture, yeah. it's to do with graphics, the world of advertising, film, television animation now which is absolutely intriguing yeah and i don't imagine that the sort of building beautiful i can't imagine kit molehouse getting excited about animations and i don't suppose you find them beautiful so i think we it, it to, to place architecture in that in the wide pantheon um of visual culture i think it's interesting and i i, I would i would be extremely interested in in um you know from Roger Scruton downwards in what people have got to think to say about it and what they think about it. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you on the point of the false premise um, about the housing numbers, because as you said a minute ago, that most applications go through in the appropriate time. Um, and the assumption that if everything suddenly is, even if it's better quality generally, ignoring the style question, that it's suddenly going to sail through quicker is a false premise. Um, and on the numbers, I mean, a good point you made at one of the events the other day was that it's about a local authority. House building numbers have crashed since the 80s, and you only have to look at the graph to see how sort of the distribution of house building was a certain way, and local authority house building was pretty high, and then suddenly went down in the 80s to almost zero, and that's effectively making up um, what is not making up the shortfall. Exactly so. And I, I, I think it's... Um... I don't think there's anything mysterious as to why we've got a housing shortage. And politicians, of course, like to pretend that it's the planning system, that it's building regulation, this and it's that. Um, and uh, I think it's a lot more simple than that. Uh, we gave up public building at precisely the moment when, for various reasons, uh, the population was increasing, inward migration, um, kind of movement from north to south and so on and so forth and actually it's a very good example of what happens if you abandon planning mm. so basically we knew this was happening we didn't plan for it and guess what now we're in a mess it has absolutely nothing to do with aesthetics and I find it embarrassing that um, politicians are always casting round for someone else to blame except themselves <laughs> it's the political class Tories and Labour alike 
um, who bought into this idea that we could do without a public sector program. They all think generation rents marvelous. So all these, all all these, uh, I mean, it's Labour as well as Tory rentiers with their six homes. They think buy to let is so clever. And if you ask them, well, do you own your own home? The answer is always yes. And we know why that is, because you pay a mortgage off after 30 years and you've got a real asset to look after you in your dementia years. But they think it's really smart for a new generation to pay rent for 30 years and end up with no asset whatsoever, just at the point when you're retiring. You know, these people are sick hypocrites. Yeah. Well, I think it's such a, the housing problem is such an interesting one because it's so sort of multifaceted and there's so many different variables and it, it varies so much by location as well. That it is effectively a southeast London and southeast problem, more so, and not a everywhere else problem. Um, and everyone seems to have their own opinion as to what is the major contributing factor. And there's sort of a hundred different things that that affect it, and no one can actually even agree that there's a lots of different things that are the issue. Well, the politicians can't because they don't want to acknowledge their responsibility for this matter. And the point is, if you've got a rising population. I mean, London is the extreme example, but it's not the only example by any manner of means. And actually, you know, rural populations collapse because you're not allowed to build homes there. Um, But basically, we haven't built enough. I mean, you know, as you say, look at the graphs. We didn't build enough, but we knew that the populations were increasing. Mm. Now, the people who... There are planners who actually do plan on the basis of real world. I'll give one example. The strategy planners at London Underground, because they have to think in kind of 20 years, you know, how many people are going to get on the tube in 20 or 25 years' time, the national census is of obsessive interest for them. And the London Underground strategy planners, by looking at the census... Oh, I think about around about 1990, were the first people to spot that London had stopped depopulating after 50 years and that central London in particular was repopulating big time. Now, this, of course, helped them in their arguments to get the Jubilee Line built and then Crossrail and, fingers crossed, Crossrail 2, because, this, you know, despite the problems of Crossrail 1, from a strategic point of view, absolutely critical to mm. the future of, of London and chunks of the southeast. So proper planning, um, you know, it's a survey, diagnosis, prognosis. If that attitude had applied to the housing market, um, then we would have had a lot more housing, provided we'd had the housing equivalent of London Underground. Mm. But, of course, we didn't. So the question for me is, well, who is it politically who's going to say, actually, we do need that equivalent. We need a pretty deregist, public sector procured housing programme. And who's saying it? The answer is no one. Yeah. Well, it's it's sort of difficult because people interpret or perceive housing as an, an individual kind of thing because it's an individual properties whereas everyone understands that train lines and motorways and things and airports are public infrastructure yes i think this is a very good point because actually the 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 refusal um to treat housing as infrastructure um 
and it did used to be treated as infrastructure. You know, even whatever their faults, the GLC overspill estates, etc., 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 they were treating housing as infrastructure. The fact that individuals live in these homes is no different to individuals getting on a tube train. What's the difference? Mm. Um, you know, you have to live somewhere and you have to travel somewhere and you've got to work somewhere. So I think that's a it's a good way of thinking about it. And actually, in some ways, um, you know, I had a conversation with Boris Johnson, um, whose housing record is starting to look not so bad compared with Sadiq Khan's. Um, and not so bad compared with Ken Livingstone's. Of course, these mayors all suffer under the delusion that the private house building sector is going to build out a social housing programme. Well, I've got news for them. No, it isn't. Um, and in some ways, I, I, th I think it shouldn't. I mean, it's, it's just another political fantasy land idea about how the world works. But anyway, um, Johnson said he did think about housing as infrastructure. And that's the way we should think about it. Mm. And I agree with that. It's about numbers. Yeah, It's not about aesthetics, which doesn't mean that stuff can't be well-designed. And you can start off with something that, to be fair to Johnson, to my mind, the first politician for 50 years who did something positive about the housing market because he introduced London space standards, which were 20% higher than the previous um, compulsory space standards of Parker Morris, which were scrapped by Michael Heseltine you know, the great Tory free marketeer mm. in the early 1980s, which YB ended up in London and therefore elsewhere, building little hutches. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's sort of a difficult question. I mean, for, for in terms of um, social house building or local authority house building, I, I sort of see a quite a strong conceptual difference or political difference between a local authority building houses which are kept as social housing and ones which are sold on to the market immediately um, or even rented out at market rates like how do you think the balance of those things needs to sort of to be established because there's, obviously there's a lot of conservative opposition to the idea of mass social housing that's retained but there'd be i think there'd be a lot of less opposition if that was it was sort of local authorities acting as developers commercially yes well, i think this is a very interesting question because there's no doubt about it that um uh, in recent years, my broad brush view is that um, conservatives just dislike poor people um, and Labour are embarrassed by them. So neither neither of them do anything about their housing conditions um, and that of their children. And I think what we have to do is to, as it were, reinvent the council estate for the 21st century. Because I think now, unfortunately, the idea of the council estate as being a real mixture of people in terms of income and occupation, let's say as a comparison in Singapore where 80% of housing is owned by the state and built by the state, um, it's only the really pretty rich who live in custom houses that they bought or have had built and everybody else lives in state housing and that varies in terms of its size and its rentals and it certainly varies in terms of the nature of the people who live in it it's a very broad brush of singaporean community life rather extraordinary combination of um a, a, a kind of state socialist model 
in one of the most private sector-oriented countries in the world. When you, when you say state housing, though, is that housing that's been built by the state but then sold onto the market, or is it housing that's still retained by the state? It's retained. It's the Housing Development Board. And actually, in the recent um, debate where Labour were condemning Singapore and Tories were saying it was marvellous, you know, one of those typical binary British debates, is it good or is it evil? But one thing the Labour people never got round to talking about was how come this private sector economy looks after um, kind of poor people in housing conditions, um, which Labour has failed to do since the 1980s. It's unbelievable. And uh, uh, I think these days, probably, if you were uh, uh, developing let's call it an estate, then you'd almost flip the kind of percentages. So um, local authorities want private house builders to make 30 or 40% of their units um, affordable, whatever that means. Another abuse of language, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Um, you could conceive of a council estate where you might sell off, say, 20% of it for, for, for private purchase, and you might have another chunk of it which was let out on a private basis. Then you could have some affordable and you could have some social. Mm. I think we don't need to be hidebound by a notion of the council estate as monolith um, social ghetto. Yeah, well, that's which what people is, are scared of, isn't yes, it? That you'll because, return to this 100% social, exactly. social rented sector where it's only people who are on, um, on benefits living in a one sort of gated development almost that turns into a slum. Exactly. That's what people are scared of. And I think the, the Conservatives are particularly averse to the notion of building um, ghettos for the indigent, as they would as they would call them, um, or think about them, you know, on benefits, no job, etc., etc., etc. And it's not socially desirable to uh, promote that, that kind of development for all sorts of reasons. But the thing is, council estates didn't used to be like that. Mm. They did have a much wider range, and you'd have to delve into a whole series of, of policies as to why that changed. Um, and it's got something to do with the sort of Cathy Come Home syndrome, which is that the obligation on local authorities to provide housing to the biggest hard luck story, mm. being harsh about it, um, almost inevitably means that your council estate becomes a desperate place of last resort. That is not the spirit with which local authority housing began. You know, look at look at the Arnold Lane estate, you know, near near uh, near Spitalfields. Um, modern, progressive, mixture of people, assumption was they'd all be working, or most of them, or retired. Yeah. Um, so I think we have to kind of reinvent what the notion of um, of public housing is. But most important is to get those numbers going. And actually, rather than thinking, oh, it's such a big task, you know, we couldn't possibly manage this. I think if you looked at what the private sector builds anyway for its own purposes, and it'll kind of do what it wants to do, you can't force the private sector to build houses and when there's a slowdown guess what you're going to get a slowdown in your so-called affordable units mm. um, I think it would be more honest actually to say to the private sector you know what the the affordable level in on your estate should be zero 
because we're going to build out um, public estates alongside you um, in addition to what you're doing, not instead of. Mm. And actually, you know, supposing just to pick numbers, supposing you did a thousand units a year in a typical London borough, is a thousand extra units, is that a lot? Really? They're all the size of towns. Of course it isn't. So all of a sudden, if you split that big problem down into a small one, so a thousand homes a borough on top of what the private market's doing, that's 33,000 a year. That's a third of a million over a decade. Mm. And if you think about I think that would be a good way to start thinking about it. Break it down into smaller, imaginable chunks, and then take your thousand and say, well, could we find, you know, a few sites to take 100 units and a few more to take 50 and a few more to take three? Yeah. Gets you a thousand. And there's no shortage of land, a big fat lie. Yeah. Well, I think there's, like you say, there's, there's this sort of fear that you're going to return to this idea of ghettoized council estates. Whereas if you, like, what you really want is a completely imperceptible difference between the units that are sold on the freeholds, the units that are retained but rented on market rates, and the units that are kept on as social rent. And, there, and that would sort of add to the numbers that the private sector and housing associations are already giving, but without that sort of political difficulty of of the idea of returning to ghettoized council estates. Well, I think that's smart, and I think there are certain models. I you know think about the um, the uh, Olympic Village uh, out at Stratford, um, you know, which the skeptics all said, oh, it's all going to be sold off to absentee overseas investors. Well, it hasn't been. A big chunk of it went to a housing association, and a lot of it's. Um, is rented out by by the Lancy, so it's private sector uh, landlord, and I think that that is an alternative model um, to what you might do. You know that housing scheme came about why because you had the Olympic Delivery Authority, it owned the land, it had a budget, it had its own planning powers. Now it, it surely can't be beyond the wit of man to think well. If you can do that on that site in Stratford, why can't you have a London-wide equivalent mm. of the ODA? Why can't I have the London Housing Development Authority, or Delivery Delivery Authority, which actually does stuff? It doesn't talk about it, and it doesn't just funnel money or prepare sites or back some scheme that some developer's doing. Mm. You know, I think you, you just have to be bolder. And actually, in London's own history are the clues to how we resolve this housing crisis. We go back to doing what we did for a century. Yeah. Well, now that the local authority um, borrowing cap's been removed, what's actually stopping local authorities getting on with it and, and borrowing and building like we're discussing? Well, I think that the, there are very welcome examples of local authorities that are doing it. But, um, of course, culturally, they haven't been doing it for decades. So that's the first problem. In other words, is it in your... Uh, to use the phrase, is it in your DNA to mm. produce housing in quantity? The answer is no, it isn't. Second, um, a lot of the stuff that they're trying to do is estate renewal. In other words, rather like the Singaporeans who are now doing estate renewal after more than 50 years of independence, so all the blocks that they built up you know, in the late 1960s all need renewing or demolishing or replacing. So um, here's the here's the appropriate phrase: net additional 
Now, in all the housing surveys that you see and all the claims being made, we're doing this, we're doing that, we've got more starts and all the rest of it, if the if net additional is not in there, then smell a rat because you see these you see these uh, extravagant claims being made for schemes you say well hang on a moment um what about the stuff you're knocking down and what about the housing years lost look at robin hood gardens ridiculous yeah. waste of embodied energy knocking down those concrete buildings they've got to decant those people who occupy housing that someone else could occupy then you've got to demolish then you've got years of construction and all the extra, you know, carbon emissions associated with that, then you've got to decamp people back in again. I mean, the housing years lost never get accounted in all this, but they should do, yeah. Because that, because you know, housing happens through time. It's not two dimensional. It's four dimensional. That's why it's so fascinating. But you know, the so so uh, when I see the sort of Savile surveys, and they're, they're pretty good. They're pretty honest. I look at these housing numbers. The first, I want to knock off uh, the stuff that's being built. Well, it's a bit slack at the moment, but, you know, certainly until quite recently, stuff being built for non-Londoners. Yes, yeah, completely separate market. So why not take that out, which at the higher end of the market, you're probably taking most of it out, actually. Mm. Well, is it Singapore? You have to be a um, citizen to be able to buy property there yeah it's quite tough owning a property um in uh, in singapore but i you know i don't think that's you know that's another of those um that's another of those nostrums that politicians like to trot out because it, it obscures uh the real reason why um, overseas investors like london and the reason for that is Tax-free capital gains, you know, robust legal system. No one's going to come steal your home in the middle of the night and then cheat you in court. Um, those are the reasons people like it. And actually, if you look at the transactional market, the proportion of the total market that that those people involved in is quite tiny. Mm. The transactional transactional market, of course mostly you know 90 percent existing properties and not new stuff so that's the next thing you have to watch out for is to keep a sense of perspective about the difference that that new construction makes to the whole and that brings us to the question of what it is that people like now what it is that people like is in general almost any historical style <laughs> except the present well, is that true though? Because I think there's um, when you build something that's contemporary but is clearly vernacular, in the sort of the Kenneth Frampton critical regionalist sense, like people seem to like that as much, if not more, than plain copying pastiche kind of stuff. So is there again we're sort of go, going back into architecture itself as a profession? What by what mechanism are architects? incentivized to do that sort of stuff rather than either hyper modern stuff which looks mm. out of place or just pastiche copies yeah well of course the one has an effect on the other doesn't it i mean you know when prince charles made his comments and we had a, a brief revival of classicism um you know you have people t basically modern office blocks and shoving a pediment <laughs> on it and uh you know, Robert Maxwell 
that had a scheme for Daily Mirror building and he'd splattered it all over his newspaper, the new designs, and the headline said, we think you'll like this, sir, you know, message to Charles. Because <laughs> it was, you know, milk and water um, uh, classicism, rather illiterate as I remember it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the I think actually the test about architecture and buildings um there is a sort of litmus test isn't there which is is it any good mm. and of course projects that have had intellectual energy and commitment put into them are usually quite good and stuff that hasn't often isn't and therefore given a choice uh, my point is that actually the, the transactional market um in many parts of Britain, involves people buying um, between the wars, Edwardian, Victorian, Georgian, and going back as far as you like. And actually, that's what most people buy. Now, you can say, well, it's a style thing, and it all derives from classism, and in a way, everything does. However, um, I think there are more banal reasons uh, why people like buying older stuff. First, it's lasted. There's a sort of robustness test. You're never quite sure about something brand new, are you? Mm. You know, if you've had a if you've had a Russell Hobbs kettle from the 1960s, would you want to bet on buying one today that you'll still be using in 50 yeah. years' time? I wouldn't. Second, um, the space and volume standards are usually far superior to anything contemporary you can get today. Um, and that's because of this terrible dumbing down which took place, you know, as a result of people like Hazeltine. Um, uh, worse and worse space standards, which is why Boris Johnson, in his first mayoral campaign, said, I'm introducing new space standards. Now, he didn't have to invent them because work on space standards had been done, funnily enough, by Richard Rogers and the architecture design unit. So there was a, mm. there was a backstory to that. But the point was, Boris made speeches saying, I'm sick of us, you know, having the worst space standards in Europe. I'm going to do something about it. And do you know what? He did. He still didn't hit his numbers yeah. on, on units. But I think, you know, credit where it's due. And uh, that was a rare example of somebody trying to actually improve the, um, the, the kind of spatial and volumetric uh, quality of what people were going to be, uh, what people were going to be living in. So I think, you know, of course, of course people like uh, old stuff and um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I live in I live in an Edwardian terraced house. It has its disadvantages, but, you know, you do your loft conversion, you do your kitchen extension, you have modernity um, mm. uh, in in the midst of, uh, of a historical style and you sort of crack on with it. I, I just... In a way, I don't see it as a, as a massive issue. There are people who uh, like to buy new. And, you know, if, let's say, if 5% of the buying public in any given year want to buy new, that's fine because that will keep the market going because the percentage of, house, of new homes in any given year it's yeah. sub five percent. Yeah, there are a few markets that are more dominated than housing by secondhand goods. Absolutely, it's the it's the like you say, ninety five percent of the market is secondhand, and it's it's a and it's good because that's about reuse and recycling and renewal, and actually, 
um, I, I don't think there's anything un, unhealthy about that. So this is a it's a very unusual market actually, and that's that's another reason why I, why I think one should try to disconnect the the kind of aesthetic argument from 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 the politics of housing provision because you know we, we all know that apart from um, inward migration, which everyone was too embarrassed to talk about or acknowledge, there is also the question of high divorce rates, household formation, longevity, all a series of trends, very revealable in the census, which tells you that whatever you thought about the number of homes you needed to provide, you were wrong, you need a lot more. Um, actually, I have to say the same thing happened in Singapore. Their projections for how many new homes they would need for the 21st century, um, they kind of hit them. I think by year fifteen, was that a technological thing? Because more people are living alone or living separately. Yeah, it was a it was a combination of circumstances. It was kind of birth rate longevity because they've got a big health and well being program, and the implication of that, of course, is not only that you have to start converting a percentage of your housing for for use by people with disabilities or you know just just the results of age um which is costly but of course it means that they're not falling off their perch so actually you you then you you know you go into either an upward or a downward spiral depending on point of view um of uh, of supply and demand and i think that you know that is properly what uh the planning system should be there to proactively engage with mm. and we're we're sort of you know we're kind of ducking it a bit aren't we you yeah know? well from an architectural point of view i'm interested in this idea of building reuse and longevity um i mean as far as i'm concerned a building should last 500 to a thousand years ideally mm. not 50 <clears throat> years um but i see a problem in that in that historical buildings tend to be very simple in their construction and to have for example structural masonry or elements that are very permanent which are and everything else is replaced over the years and the, the permanent elements have the most architectural merit about them whereas in a contemporary building the architectural bits that will last the longest i.e., normally concrete frames have the least architectural merit and all the merit is sort of on the facade and all the little the little bits that break after 10 years so how how do we sort of at an architectural level, make buildings that do last hundreds and hundreds of years mm. that can be reused, and do we have to sort of almost simplify buildings to some extent and stop them getting too complex? Well, I think I think they, these are all good points because um, the idea of Habracken, uh, I think the the, the Dutch um, theorist and architect and teacher in his nineties now. Um, but what he what he promoted was the idea, in a sense, of the service box, that, that buildings should be quite non-specific um, in their uses, and out of that line of thinking came, um, you know, the best phrase the RIBA ever coined, bar none, which was long life, lose fit, low energy. Now, those sorts of ideas are applicable, in fact, to any building type. But I think they're they're particularly important for housing because the difference between let's say why is it that the Georgian house seems to be capable of being house 
manufacturing base, shop, boutique hotel, etc., etc., etc. And there are analyzable and definable things about a Georgian house which make all that possible. And I think we've rather ignored that in the pursuit of um, super functional, super cost efficient um, technologies which mitigate absolutely against long life. And that's just on the housing front. But then if you look at um, the, 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 the embarrassing example of how is it that Victorian board schools um, have prolonged life, whereas the schools we were building in the 50s and 60s, kind of, you have to demolish them yeah. for various reasons. And of course, there are reasons for why, you know, cheap construction applied post-World War II. But nevertheless, if you just take the architectural differences, you can see that long life lose fit, relatively low energy, or low energy with some pretty simple retrofitting for all those Victorian schools and hospitals and lunatic asylums um, is simply not the case if we look at the sort of buildings that we're doing today. And I think that that is, um, again, I don't think it's got anything to do with aesthetics, actually, because even if you, if, even if you said, ah, but they sort of realised that they were building forever, and therefore they have uh, ornament and decoration, etc., etc., etc. I could sort of see that as an argument, but I don't think that I don't think that was the reason that they were doing it. They were doing it because that 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 was what was culturally acceptable and, and a sort of cultural norm. Mm. And most of them were built from patent books by contractors, weren't they? Rather than directly architecturally yeah. built. And what we do is what, what volume house builders call gobons, which is the sort of mock Georgian bits and pieces that they slap illiterately over facades and try yeah, yeah. <laughs> give them a scintilla of interest. But of course, actually really good modernist architecture um, is fascinating all of its own. Um, I mean, a lack of ornament can can be as powerful as ornament. And, mm. um, but it has to be good, admittedly. But if you uh, take that proposition, which is, well, how do we build for posterity? It has more to do with ease of servicing, ease of retrofit, um, and um, generosity, I think, of volume in some ways more significant than space. Mm. Or flexibility of volume as well yeah, so because, rather than designing specifically for the function the, exactly. the first function you design with enough flexibility to accommodate possible exactly future functions. so we had a we had a thing at cape you know we would look at hospital and say well is this an example of a really good contemporary hospital um building for this year's fashions or is it a good piece of architecture and quite often it was not a good piece of architecture. And if you ask a simple question, if this building wasn't a hospital, what else could it be? You're in deep trouble. And I think that that, um, so this is, this, is, this is not about aesthetics. This is actually an, an, an analysis of space and volume and servicing. And if you wanted to really promote um, long life, loose fit, low energy, I think what you might think about is that when 
significant buildings are coming in for planning permission. You'd ask for a double application. You'd ask for the first use, and then you'd ask for an alternative use where you've had to do some retrofitting, but mm. show how you could use this for a completely different building type. And I'll give an example of where I think this, with with some further thought, this could have happened. And in some cases, it may even be able to happen now. Let's take the shopping centre. Um, generally considered, either it's there or it's not. If it's not there, you've got to knock it down. But actually, um, an analysis of the shopping centre tells you it would actually make quite a good hospital. Right. And if you if you look at a section through a shopping centre and a section through a hospital, you start to see similarities. You know, the, the, yeah. the big atrium, you know, just actually... Trying, I'm just trying to imagine Blue Water Hospital now. Exactly. <laughs> but imagine, the, imagine their treatment rooms. And imagine that instead of wards, you've got individual rooms, which is the way we want to go anyway. I think that you could... Uh, I'd like to encourage some schools of architecture to have a crack at doing this because, um, and of course, locationally, generally, either they've got parking or they're in the middle of town. Yeah. <laughs> Whichever way you look at it, they win, actually win, yeah. they look quite good as medical facilities. So I think it's... so, And, and what would make it difficult, usually, is where the core goes. Now... Thinking about the core for a second use is something that no one does. It's just like, well, let's put the cores where it seems to be most useful for this shopping centre. But if you were forced to think, okay, but from a, a, a retrofit point of view, the core is a bit of a disaster, and actually we could adjust, we could adjust the plan, we could adjust the core location, and then this building could be one of two or three different things without massive and undue expense. And I think the whole idea of um, demolition is nuts if you mm. can possibly avoid it. All that embodied well, energy. Well, is this where stage seven starts to come in as a relevant thing? Like it's, uh, my next question was going to be, if you're going to have that sort of that consideration of future use, at what level is that enforced? Is it a building regulations thing? Is it a planning thing? How do you incentivize or force the person doing the development on the first occasion yeah. to, to consider that? Well, I think it's a it's a good question because you could do it um, you could do it formally through the planning system and just require people to make a double application. Um, Presumably, then though they'd just pick whatever the easiest second option was. That might not be so bad. I mean, the office that turns into a hotel. The, the the interesting question is if you would do it the other way around, would you require housing schemes to would you to show how they could be used for something else? I think that's more problematical because in truth, you know, housing estates. I mean, housing does tend to last forever unless yeah. it, unless it unless falls it's down. right in the centre and it's, you have Jordan yeah, houses becoming exactly so it becomes things, more yeah. valuable. But in general, houses I would say are designed and built to last. Um, you know, even even build to let stuff doesn't look as though it'd be that easy to, mm. to demolish. Um, so I think that's that's very interesting um, territory, and and that ought to be a sort of that ought to be a modernist agenda. 
um, because it does relate to space and volume through time. And I, 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 when we launched the Retrofit Awards at the Architects Journal, my pet acronym for, for Retrofit is, it, it was the name of, um, which I don't know if they sell it anymore, but it was, a, it was tin dog food and it was called PAL. And the, right. the TV version was PAL meat for dogs. And PAL stood for prolongs active life. Now, prolonging active life, I think, is as good a definition of retrofit as you could get. And, of course, prolonging it means bringing it up to current regulatory standards. So there's always mm. a big energy and carbon story in any decent retrofit project. But the real point is, if you can't prolong the active life of a building, then it may have been okay as a building in its day, but I think it's bad architecture. And that inherent inherent inflexibility and difficulties of the that nice distinction between those usually get it the wrong way around, adaptability and flexibility. So adaptability means that you can conduct the same activity in the building in different ways mm. the school that changes its classroom arrangements etc etc and flexibility the building that can turn into something else without undue difficulty i might flip them it doesn't really matter it's just it, it's two different notions and good architecture is probably going to be generous enough in all sorts of respects to allow prolonged use even though you may be doing things in a different way um, but will also make it relatively easy to switch the use yeah. to something completely well, different I think you've got to have some somebody or some organisation that's incentivized to do it though so having worked with Grosvenor one of the interesting things about them is they do think in terms of one, two, three hundred year yeah. cycles because they're incentive to do so mm. whereas your day-to-day -day developer who's just flipping sites every two or three or four years isn't incentivized to do that and, no, it's e and true. even your local authority you have your politician who's going to be elected for one term maybe two terms they're not going to be incentivized to do it because they're not going to be accountable for even if local authority retains ownership they're not going to be accountable so how do you incentivize somebody to be accountable for that long-term view well somebody always owns it I mean, just because it gets traded doesn't mean it, the building hasn't got an owner. And, you know, in the case of apartments, then it's the leaseholders, possibly with a freeholder. And even if the freeholder changes, one of these ghastly ground rent crooks, um, there is always going to be an ownership position. And the position of those owners, unless they're intent on demolishing for other reasons, land value or whatever. Um, but in general... They'll make money by not having to repair and replace and demolish. So I think there's 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 potentially, at the very least, an inbuilt pressure to conserve and make things last, because apart from anything else, you know, it avoids the awful costs of you know structural repair, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So assuming that building regulations don't change, actually. You know, once you've got concrete, steel frames, and all the rest of it, 
this stuff lasts an awful long time. Mm. It's almost impossible to design for redundancy, actually, structure. Very, very difficult. Design, design me a power station that fails after 30 years. You can't. The use might stop after 30 years, but my God, the power station's still there. Yeah. Look at Battersea. You know, you can't. It's very, very difficult to design things that fail in the short term. This stuff lasts yeah. a long time. Well, it, like I said at the beginning, it's the the small things that fail quickly, isn't it? So it's the external skin, the facade, yeah. the interior finishings, all the, all the little less less um, resilient stuff. That's what has to be designed to be easily replaceable at exactly. regular intervals. Well, this is this is the this is the plug-in notion of the building, which was a sort of Herbrecken thing. Everything plugs in or plugs out, and. Um, you know, there are architects like Orkin and Morris have been obsessing about the um, the universal buildings, they call it. So, for example, their white-collar factory office building in Shoreditch, um, Old Street Roundabout, has been designed with very big floor-to-ceiling uh, dimensions, Um it's deliberately kind of unfinished. Um, it's tenants who fit the building out um, to their own specification, but they don't have to do very much if they, unless they want to. You could go full Monty, but why would you? It's not that sort of a building. And the point is that the owners, um, you know, in thirty years' time, they could turn that they could turn floors into school floors. But yeah. they, the, the conceptually, they've done it. Mm. Um, you could turn it into a hotel. You could do a whole load of stuff because it's forgiving and it's generous and it's well serviced. So that's the nearest kind of worked commercial example I can think of where those ideas about longevity and change of use have been deliberately worked into the design right from the outset. Mm. Now, but does um does moving this on a bit to, mm. in terms of the sort of technology side i sort of come from a bim heritage right? yeah. a bim manager how can you incorporate that kind of thing in the the building data or using bim um to be able to to see what's going to need replacing and what's going to be, be easily replaceable and what's designed to last 200 years and what's designed to last five years on a sort of on an immediately accessible level from the very beginning I don't, see, I don't really see why not. I mean, Richard Rogers did all this with Lloyd's, you know, 40 years ago. Um, you know what's going to go first, roughly. There's a sort of pecking order, isn't there? And if you want some of that stuff to last longer, well, just use more expensive materials and it will last longer. The real thing about that building was between the start of design and, and, and first occupation, the estimate of... Um, energy use had jumped nine times I think because of technology changes to do with the electronic office um, but in fact the what they designed was robust enough to be able to take the additional wiring etc 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 I mean in a sense it proved the value of its architectural proposition um, before the client had moved in um, I, I mean it's a rather it's a rather good example of an expensive building and an expensive architect, but they actually achieve something extraordinary without realizing how quickly 
the building would have to adapt to the um, technology revolution. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? You don't know what it's going to end up being converted into. If exactly, anything. and you've got to think about that, I suppose. But you have got you have got historical precedent. I mean, with the exception, I suppose, of computer suites. What spaces are different now to what they were a hundred years ago? Yeah. Um, from in terms of architectural education, um, how do you see what what is it not doing right at the moment that it needs to change on, and how do you see it moving forward? Because I know you you wrote a piece recently about the sort of schools taking responsibility for the qualification process. Mm. Um, but how do you see architectural education progressing? Well, let's hope they don't keep dishing out first like confetti, you know, which is just ludicrous um well i think it's very exciting time for uh schools of architecture firstly because the um the riba and i think dragging the registration board along with it no doubt sucking air through their teeth um has come to terms with the notion that really um people have done let's call it seven years um, of full-time education, <clears throat> ought to uh, be able to call themselves architects and should know enough to be able to take on a certain level of project um, in a competent professional manner. Um, and I think that the fluid nature of how architecture is taught, the term lengths, etc, etc, etc. Probably a good thing because, let's face it, you know, everyone can do distance learning now, can't they? Mm. Everyone is a distance learner. And I think it's a huge kind of um, sort of fluid melting pot time uh, for schools where technology just opens up such extraordinary possibilities the other thing i would hope is that um i think the uh, it's a sort of apartheid culture isn't it where um you know our architecture are they all about art or are they all about bim well the answer is they're not all about anything they're all about everything mm. and actually there shouldn't be this i think completely artificial distinction between what it is to practice and make things and what it is to think about things and design things um and i think there's been far too much emphasis on difference and there should be far greater emphasis on um kind of not similarities exactly but just the fact that you sh you should embrace the difference between theory and practice instead of never the twain shall meet and mm. how dare you suggest that anybody ought to be taught to draw because drawing is an ac academic subject. I still find it's completely yeah. bizarre. Well, of course, architects should be able to bloody well draw. And the, the thing about this is that technology not only will assist them in that process, but will allow them to produce drawings <laughs> which can be, you know, a as it were, oh, that's my Alberti version or it's my Mies version. I mean... You know, come on, can we can we just get with it? 
and I, and the other thing is, of course, that the um, all bets are off as as far as technology is concerned and where it's going to take us. Visualizations, mm. simulacrums of cities and situations. I think it's incredibly exciting, um, but it doesn't take away from the fact that um, architects, as professionals have moral as well as contractual obligations to clients and to users. Yeah. And they, well, they just need to know what they're doing. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why I call this podcast Theory of Architecture is that I've been sort of struck, having worked in quite a few quite a range of practices over the years, how little conversation there is about why you're building something the way you are. Like designs just seem to be sort of magicked up in two or three days from a few sketches that the directors do and they think oh we'll do that because it looks a bit better and there's no really deep thinking about why it is that you design something a certain way no i think this i think this is very important because if if schools err on the side of as it were architecture for architecture's sake then i fear that uh, too many practices are unreflecting or unreflective about the design process and why it is that they're proposing that thing for that site. Where's it come from? And I think you often find, you know, with the we we observe this at K Design Review quite a lot, where architects will present a proposal and essentially they're just giving you a long list of constraints and showing how they've managed to meet the constraint. You know, you'd say, okay, fine, you had 12 constraints, you've met all of them, but unfortunately, you know, this is terrible. Yeah. Why don't you just design something, which then, why don't you design something good? You know, what is good? Okay. Why don't you design something which is great, which you really think would be fantastic for this site, and then make that design effortlessly meet the constraints? Why are you starting with constraints? Why aren't you starting with a positive proposition? And you take actually the site isn't the constraint. The site's an opportunity. Yeah, the site's wonderful. Well, the neighbours are wonderful. A lot of architects seem to have lost that sense of boldness about having that wider vision, rather than saying, "Oh, we mustn't like conflict with this constraint and that constraint," and then using parametric tools to generate a building out of the constraints, and then just adding a facade on it or whatever it is, rather than like you say, having a sort of taking the opportunity to make something that they have a vision for and then using well, skill and competence to make it not conflict with the constraint. Well, this, this is why the late, great Will Allsop said form has nothing to do with function. Now, he didn't mean that you should willfully design things that were incapable of being used, but he, what he was objecting to was the, sort of the narrow functionalist notion that actually the only function of the building is to allow certain activities uh, within it, and that's all that matters. You end up with tight-fit buildings like modern hospitals. And his point was, but supposing the wider function of the building, shall we say, is to delight everybody who looks at it. Now, is that functional or isn't it? Well, the functionists would probably say not, but... Actually, of course, it's part of the function of yeah, architecture. Absolutely. It's part of visual culture. And there aren't so many architects who um, take that sort of view. And if they do, then they tend to get buttonholed as, as kind of, you know, victims of iconitis or whatever. But of course, uh, an icon's a good thing if history judges it 
to be so. Um, but, you know, bad architects say, oh, my clients asked me for an icon, so I'll just do something wacky. Is of yeah. course, useless. And that's actually a denial of architectural theory. And it's, 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 it has no integrity whatsoever. Mm. Rather like the client who's asked for an icon. Yeah. Well, like you say, in terms of the definition of what the function of a building is, I would say it does obviously include to to consider the people outside of the building looking at it and to consider its context and its wider urban landscape and to to act harmoniously with them unless its specific function is to be an icon, like the Guggenheim or something like that. I'd say most buildings do have that responsibility and that should be considered part of their function. Yes, and in theory, of course, in theory, planning suggests that those are the considerations that should be taken into account and that actually the red line, the dreaded red line of site ownership, um, rather than being a determinant of what's being done, it should just be one of many elements that contribute to the creative process of, of making something extraordinary. I mean, I think the this business about um, context um, and respect um, are things that have to be considered and argued out on almost every occasion. Supposing it's a bad context, and that actually what you need to do is to transform it. So you absolutely mm. do not want to be like anything else around. And I think that is a, you know, it is is this a place? If you look at the, which we still use at World Architecture Festival, actually we give judges criteria. They're not tick boxes. They say, look the spirit of our judging should be carried out under the Cabe design review um, document, I think, of 2002. And in that, um, it sets out, it's called What Makes a Good Project. There's a section in it called what, what Makes a Good Project. And it actually defines the things that should be taken into account. Now, just because you took them into account doesn't mean you've successfully taken them into account. But on the other hand, if you haven't taken them into account, it's a failure. One of the biggest failures is 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 that red line idea um, yeah. that you don't take proper account of your context, and I think whether you're doing exclamation marks or genuflecting is going to depend on circumstance. I think all one can say is that um, I mean pastiche. I think can be great. I mean I think pastiche is, is, is pastiche has become a sort of you know, highly pejorative term, actually, quite wrongly. I like the thing in um, Miami Beach and the Art Deco district. If they're doing a new building down there, the motto to describe the spirit in which additions should be designed to the existing streetscape um, is similar but not the same. Mm. They do not want people to replicate stuff from the 30s and 40s. Um, it's not going to work. Actually, it won't look the same, even if you did exact copies. And you never can do exact copies for all sorts mm. of reasons. Well, I think for a lot of architects, though, even the idea of similar is almost, is, would be offensive as an idea. The, the, yeah, the idea of referencing to any significant degree or meaningful degree the current context is, is sort of as a pejorative idea. Well, this goes back to the idea of beauty, isn't it? Why is it that yeah. architects are so allergic to the idea of discussing what beauty means? Well... I think because the word is too loaded um, and actually 
you know, it's 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 goth gothics gothic or classical. When you couldn't get a greater punch up, could you? Um, so are are we supposed to uh, say that actually the Palace of Westminster should have been like Westminster Abbey, you know, or Whitehall really was a total disaster being done in a classical manner? I I think you find similarities. It depends what you're looking for. I mean, at a certain level, you know what buildings are the same. You take a Farrell building and a Grimshaw building, which oh my God, they're so different. You know what? They're not that different. And I think that actually there's a huge level of similarity, uh, a certain level of analysis. You know, you take the Gherkin, take the Lloyd's building. Quite quite an interesting thing. Well, it depends what your precedents are, doesn't it, about what you're looking at? Because you could look at industrial buildings in the city. You could look at power stations. And you could look at its jukebox (laughs) <laughs> sort of faintly I don't know what it is it's a sort of little nod to Brunelleschi I've never understood why they did that sort of strange Vegas topping to it it wasn't on the original drawings but um, nevertheless you can you, I think you can find a lot of similarities between buildings and if you look at let's say another Rogers building the Lloyd's Register building within spitting distance of Lloyd's of London and you say well, these are completely different buildings but actually you start analysing it they're not that different. They look different. But, you know, that's like saying two human beings, we don't look the same. But actually, You're pretty much the same. Eyes, yeah. nose, etc., etc., etc. So I think there's a sort of, you know, the buildings that are really different are ones with a fundamental difference in use. Mm. So, for example, the railway, the 19th century railway station couldn't be a classical building, actually, um, because of what it was there to do. But it could still be, still got proportions. Mm. Um, Still has its entry sequence and so on and so forth. So I think that, you know, and the other thing is that good buildings have, have, it's like it's a version of Tolstoy, isn't it? You know, all happy families are the same. All unhappy families are unhappy, each in their individual way. <laughs> Good buildings have got a lot in common, and it's nothing to do with what they look like. Mm. They have an integrity about them. They have a sort of what you see is what you get. There's a kind of there's a kind of inevitability about why things are the way they are, and they have good circulation and they have their moments and bad buildings are kind of well you know they're all around us good ones are hard to find yeah and, um but you know does anyone really set out and oh i'm going to design a bad building today yeah well i think it's it's taking it back to education i think it's interesting to sort of think about how that how it's taught um in terms of the differences between good and bad architecture because there's there's i think far too much of a focus at the moment on con- concepts and especially on socio-political agendas as well they like go around yeah. a lot of the the um degree shows and everyone has their own uh effectively political agenda or, pro- or partic- political project or socio-political mm. intervention and all of the merit seems to be focused on how good that is rather than on how good the actual architecture is 
<laughs> Sorry, throw her off if you want to. No, well, I there's a there's a. Actually, I should add something to work to architecture schools. So what I do think is there isn't nearly enough architectural history taught, uh, or history of construction. You know, architectural history in the end is sort of a history of everything, mm. because the buildings actually embody within them um, the history of time and place and politics and money inevitably which is why it's so interesting and um, I think it's sort of embarrassing if, if, if architects have a lesser knowledge of architectural history and indeed architectural styles yeah. than somebody from the amenity society that they're talking to at a party. Yeah, well this is one of the things that Tim Britton Catlin was saying is that they they did a special, um, some kind of special set of lectures or talks about mm. architectural history and historical elements and all these sorts of things. Yeah. And the feedback he got from the said he got from the students was, why aren't we taught this all the time? Quite. Like, why Why don't we have the language? Why aren't you equipping us with the language to talk yeah, about these things? Because, but and and he said that is there maybe a fear that if architectural students are taught about historical architecture that they'll then start doing historical architecture rather than doing modernism or any, anything that isn't just a pastiche i suspect it's because there aren't enough really good teachers equipped to do all that stuff mm. i mean you know let's say if you take an architect like eric parry super sophisticated absolutely knows his history and theory inside out, but then he was taught by Danibor Vesely. Um, there aren't too many Danibors around, nor Joseph Richards. Yeah. Well, but I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think, you know, uh, history, and of course that includes uh, uh, theory. You know, you can't have a history of architecture without understanding um, the history of theories of architecture. You know, it's, it's like it is the it is literally the the, the building block, isn't it? Mm. It's the foundations, and um, I don't think it gets. You know, I remember uh, a guy I worked taught for years at an institution where you know he had to he had to teach the students about the Renaissance in like two forty five minute lectures or something. This is preposterous, and. Mm. Um, I, I, if that's, I fear that's the dirty little secret. Actually, it's not that the stuff is being badly taught or taught as propaganda. It's that it isn't being taught at all, or it's not being taught nearly enough. Mm. And therefore, the discussions about well, where do styles come from, why do they change, etc., etc., etc what are accidental, what are deliberate, what derived from technology, and so on and so forth, what derived from politics. Yeah. Well, does the RIBA have a role to play in that? Does it have to set more rigorous requirements for what schools have to teach in order to get part one and part two accreditation? It's pretty tough because formally it's it's the ARB's job. Um, but in association with the, the RIBA, I think that the movement is towards more autonomy for schools themselves that's the way things are moving and i think it's uh, up to the schools to be quite 
reflective about the outcome of um, you know the seven years or five years for sure yeah. four or five years um, it's it's almost the history of architecture is almost a sort of foundation called subject isn't it you know why who has built what and why and for yeah. whom and how I, I used to give a talk to um, Bartlett students on a media course it was an MSc course and my point was that if you ask the question about any building project um, in the way that you would talk about, that a journalist would talk about a news story, a competent news story says who, what, where, when, how and why. If you ask those questions about any building and you have anything like a full answer, then you will have an extraordinary history. Yeah. Um, and I think this isn't just I don't think it's appreciated enough how much history um, history of architecture uh, is the connection to to everything yeah well how do you get to the point where that's reintroduced like if there aren't the teachers who are competent enough to teach it how do you get from where we are now to a position where history of architecture well, actually, is taught rigorously it's just reminded me that a cave years ago we looked at and I'm trying to know what happened to this idea I think we produced some sort of paper where um, we suggested that the teaching of architecture that's right so this was just an idea it wasn't implemented but it was a proposition as to how architecture could be introduced into the curriculum in schools. And of course, the answer to that was via the art teacher. Mm. And the notion was that um, we, we proposed that a set of teaching aids should be produced, you know, like models um, with, with visuals, so that the art teacher wouldn't, if they, they didn't have to be expert in architecture, they could just look it up before they gave the, <laughs> before they did the lesson. Yeah, and that actually what you would do is sort of I think there was even a title for it I think it was the history of architecture from the pyramids to the pyramid in the Louvre or something like that it was something that was something quite contemporary at the time and um, that notion was to actually explain um why things looked like they did, and why they were built, why they were built, and who they were for, etc., etc., etc. And um, it's an amazing story, of which classicism is is a significant part. Yeah, but it's not the only part. Yeah, and I, th I think that that is. Um, I would just take it as read that um, I think the idea of a dominant, especially looking at, across the world would be odd but people have got to understand why things were done and i don't know i don't know do they teach proportion yeah don't know well, i think as much, i assume so you you should know well as much as we sort of make fun of prince charles and the classicists i think there is we forget that there is actually a lot of 
valuable information within the learning of traditional architecture no completely i i think it's just, i think it's um i was kind of intellectually dishonest to um to try to ignore classicism i mean it's ludicrous uh it's completely unhistorical and absurd and um you know everyone should know their serlio shouldn't they it, it's the, the the question is that you don't have to t you really don't have to take sides on this, and uh, I think the 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 head banging bores me to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, because the truth is that most of the early modernists would all been brought up in a classical tradition, and in the same way that the you know that the impressionists had all all been brought up as as classical artists, and for whatever reason they had to find their own language and ways of expression because the old the old ways just weren't doing it for them mm. and i think rather than say well what a disaster that was or how terrible it was is to understand why that was a lot of the sort of binary thing that's happened you know are you a classist or aren't you it's a sort of meaningless question and i think that the um the what I think happens is when you get really intelligent people who are usually not on either side of this so-called debate, they're just in really intelligent people, you know, they can have a conversation. But there's no point in trying to, trying to say to somebody like Eric Parry, well, it's really so unfortunate that you're doing these tall buildings, tall office buildings, you know, shock mm. horror. And although Leon Creel is a very witty polemicist, um, I think sort of pretending that the international office market doesn't exist, it was kind of futile. And of course, Leon wasn't interested in designing office buildings. You know, it wasn't what he did. But I think that it doesn't it doesn't mean that other people can't quite legitimately do exactly that, and they're not going to be dressing them up in in any particular style actually they'll they'll derive from a whole series of issues and that's kind of what makes the world go around but one of the things that they would derive from is ideas about proportion after all you know the city planning the city of corporation planners they want a base middle and top as much as alberti did <laughs> and they're in a position to insist on it yeah all right well to bring this back to a final question then back onto the build, the building beautiful commission what can the architectural profession the architectural media and the government and all the people involved do to work together and have a conversation that is productive and not tainted by judgments and history to progress everything forward in a in a productive way It's a good question. I th I think the um, it might be that there's a reminder about why classicism classicism has been important to architecture um, in Europe and in America in particular. 
I think one of the most interesting stories is the uh, transatlantic back and forth of architectural ideas, you know, from Washington onwards. Mm. So classicism is exported to the land of wigwams by, you know, the early Europeans. Um, and then, you know, and, and Ruskin is published in sort of, as far as I can tell, Samizdat editions in America at some point. So the, the, the ideas are very important. Frank Lloyd Wright re, reads Ruskin and etc. And then at a certain point, um, American ideas around industrialization start having an effect on Europe. The European modernists eventually go to America um, and do their thing. The Americans uh, export the commercial cousin of that sort of let's say Bauhaus architecture in the form of the glazed skyscraper they export that to Europe and everywhere really but the latest thing is that um, European architects working in quite individual styles and actually not as part of any sort of movement sort of grab hold of the imagination in New York where all the sort of big name star architects are all doing stuff alongside the Americans but in an unprecedented numbers I mean you couldn't get into America to do buildings the only Brit architect who ever did anything in America until relatively recent was Alfred Bosson who did commercial architecture in Houston before he came home and he was the man who became a cabinet minister didn't he and Churchill said to him said about him bosom neither one thing nor the other <laughs> um, but then you know now Foster and Rogers and Nouvelle and Hadid and you name it and they're all over in America mm. and I think that that transatlantic flow is very very interesting and a lot of it is derives from um, these cultural exchanges which initially all stem from classicism. I think that's a really interesting story, rather undertold. Mm. And I think that the best way really to um, approach these questions of cultural difference is through history. And the more you find out, the more you realise that, yes, of course there are differences, but there are an awful lot of similarities in the end, I think good architects and good architects have much more in common with each other, irrespective of of style, than one might at first imagine. Mm. Well, on that stingly international note, where can everyone find out about the World Architecture Festival? Um, www.worldarchitecturefestival.com. Very active website. Where is it this year? All the details. We're in Amsterdam first week in December. First week of December, brilliant. Well, that's sufficiently close that I may be able to make it this year. Very good. Which will be fantastic. And Paul Finch, thank you very much. Hope to see you there. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.